The problem with God won't give you more than you can handle is that it actually puts it puts it back on you to deal with whatever it is that you're dealing with. If God won't give you more than you can handle, then that means that whatever you're going through, you have to get yourself through. So I don't know about you, but I love me some Christian catchphrases. God is good all the time. And all the time, come on now, you know your part. God is good. Can't get enough. Okay, maybe I'm being a little sarcastic. I don't know if that's even allowed on a Christian podcast, but here I am breaking all the rules. See, it's not just John Christ who can play this game. But where was I? Okay, Christian catchphrases. We all know them, we've all heard them, and we've probably said them. I'm even guilty. Even if you don't identify as Christian. So today's show is especially for all of us in this realm. We are here, my misfit friends, to talk about the catchphrase of all Christian catchphrases. God won't give you more than you can handle. And wouldn't you know it, I happen to have the author of a book with the same title. Well, at least the back half of it on the line with me right now. His name is Nate Pyle. He's a pastor, he's a popular columnist, he's featured in places like Huffington Post, Sojourners, and the like, and I'm kind of thrilled to welcome you, Nate, to our humble little aisle. So welcome. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's fun to be on the aisle with you all. You are most welcome. We misfits, we we like to get real. So we're just going to we're going to get real right off the bat. So I I kind of tease the name of your book. So why don't, why don't you tell us what the actual title of your book is? Yeah, the actual title of the book is More Than You Can Handle When Life's Overwhelming Pain Meets God's Overcoming Grace. So. Ah, okay. So not quite the catchphrase, not yeah. So um and not I want, quite the catchphrase, just a little play off of it. Yep. A little play off of it. And and I I can't wait to dive right into that because there's there's lots I want to talk with you about today. Um, but before we do, uh, I gave you fair warning and you didn't run, so we got to do <laughs> what we got to do. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna play a stupid game. So here's your stupid game. We're talking about catchphrases, or at least that's how we're entering the conversation, segueing into the deeper things later. But for now, we're going to keep it on the surface, as we should. So we're going to build our own Christian catchphrase. In fact, you're going to do it. And I'm going to help you, though. So I'm going to throw out to you, Nate Pyle, just a bunch oh. of Christianese terms, and you're going to build a catchphrase. What do you think about that? All right. Okay. Well, hey, let's, let's give it a shot. Let's do it. Okay. Here you go. Here are your terms. Chick-fil-A, hedge of protection, that wrecked me, fellowship, and fog machine. What can you do with those? I'll give you time. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I'll play some good music use, in the background. Do I, I <laughs> you don't have to use all of them. Yeah, I'll save them again. Okay. Yes, you are under no obligation to use all of them, but you will get bonus points if you do. I'm just saying. Um, okay, so here are the terms. Chick-fil-A. Hedge of protection, that wrecked me. Fellowship and fog machine. I've given you some good mm. material to work with. You have given yes. me some yeah. very good material. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The prayers of the saints 
are like a fog machine hedge of protection around Chick-fil-A. Oh, my gosh. I got a lot there. That was amazing. I'm crying right now. I'm going to write that down. I'm going to tweet that, actually, and we're going to start a whole new uh, movement. So, but I will credit you with it. I promise. That was fantastic. Congratulations. You win the grand prize. I didn't even tell you there was a grand prize, but um, but there is. A Isle of Misfits uh, and Isle of Misfits mug is coming your way sometime in the near future. So, guaranteed. Wonderful. Yes. Wonderful. If if, if nothing, Christians like coffee almost as much as we like Chick fil A. Exactly. So, So, a mug is perfect. So, you you gotta promise me that while you're drinking your awkward coffee out of the mug that you will utter that phrase at least once a day. At least once a day. Awesome, <laughs> awesome, awesome. All right, well, thank you so much for playing. See, it, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Oops, there's another catchphrase. All right, <laughs> we're moving right along. Okay, so so this book, I'm going to start out with, I, I got to start here. I don't know if it's a good question or not, but just the whole title of the book, why? Why, why this book? Yeah, I, I think for t- for two reasons. One, as as a, as an individual, as a family, like we have gone through a number of different circumstances that really felt overwhelming, that were confusing, that we really didn't know how to handle while we were in the midst of, and so we did feel like we were at times dealing with more than what we could handle. And so there, there's that aspect of it. And then there's also the aspect of being a pastor and growing up in the church. I have heard the phrase, God won't give you more than you can handle so many times. And and, and, and uttered by people with really good intentions, I think the best of intentions, but not really understanding both how difficult it is to receive that, that phrase, being on the receiving end of it, but then also just people not realizing how, how really bad the theology is embedded within that statement. And so as we went through our experiences, and thankfully no one said it to us, but as I I really felt like we were given more than we can handle, that phrase came up to mind, and I just wanted to both uh, write a book that talked about those times in which we feel like we've been given more than we can handle, and that offers some, some hope, some real biblical hope that is deeper and, and, and more resilient than that phrase. Right. Okay. And speaking of, so where do you think, I mean, I have some of my own ideas, but you're the pastor. Where did that come <laughs> from? Where did, where did we extrapolate that phrase from, do you think? I think it comes from two things. One, I think it comes from the Bible in First Corinthians chapter thirteen, mm-hmm. uh, or my, or is it ten? I'm, I'm, no, uh, ten. I'm blanking right now. As the pastor, it's ten. It's, it's ten. ten. Right. Yes, first thirteen. Yep. Yes. Yep, and, and it's and where Paul says that you will not be tempted beyond that which you can endure, right? right and so it's right, this right. idea that, you, it, but, but when you look at that and you really examine what Paul's talking about, it's very clear in that passage that it's talking about temptation. And so this idea that you won't be tempted beyond what you can endure, and it's kind of morphed into beyond temptation to apply to any situation whatsoever. I think the other place where the phrase comes from is maybe, or maybe even it's a combination of this idea that's in First Corinthians chapter 10, and just good old American, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, ideology. 
that you should be able to handle things. You have to be, you know, you don't want to be reliant. You want to be self-reliant and you want to be a self-made individual. Like these themes that exist within American culture that on some level are good when combined with a, a misreading of the Bible actually become this phrase that sounds good, like God helps those who help themselves. Exactly, the sister really phrase. Right, yes, yes. Yeah. Right. Because, and, that's, and, and that's the problem with this phrase. The problem with God won't give you more than you can handle is that it actually puts it puts it back on you to deal with whatever it is that you're dealing with. If God won't give you more than you can handle, then that means that whatever you're going through, you have to get yourself through because God gave it to you because you can handle it. You don't have to rely on God. You don't have to look for him to help. You don't need the miracle in your life. You don't need the comfort of others. You can handle it. So deal with it. And if you feel like you can't deal with it, then all of a sudden that's where the shame starts to come in. Maybe you feel like a failure. Maybe you feel like your faith isn't good enough. You begin to doubt. And even begin to doubt, like, how could a good God give me this thinking that I could get myself through this situation? And that's where the problem with this phrase really begins to really begin to rear its ugly head in people's lives. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So, and it brings another scripture to mind. So you're the pastor. You can quiz me on this. It's in Galatians, I think. But, you know, Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God, right? Because if righteousness could be gained through observing the law, Christ died for nothing. And the reason it reminds me of what you're saying is, you know, if, like you said, if, hey, if we can do this on our own, in our own strength, then what the heck do we need God for? Exactly right. And what's fascinating is if you look at First Corinthians ten thirteen, it's written by Paul, right? Paul, and, and that's where this, the twistedness of this verse comes from. But if you turn over to Second Corinthians chapter one and verses eight and nine, Paul actually writes uh, that we endured so many trials that we despaired of life itself. Yep. So you've got Paul here who has learned how to be content in any and all situations, whether he has lots or whether he has little, little whether he's in a, in a good place or whether he's in a jail cell, he still knows how to sing hymns, right? And yet this Paul says, we, were, we faced so many trials, we endured so much suffering and so much pain that we actually despaired of life itself. But then he goes on to say, we despaired of life itself so that in our despair we could rely on Christ and his strength. And so again, this is where the insidiousness of that phrase comes from, is it actually turns you away from Christ's strength towards your own. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it puts me in mind. I was actually uh, texting with a pastor friend of mine earlier today about just a situation, and, and the reply was, hmm, desperate, vulnerable, needy, sounds like a perfect place to be. And <laughs> that's kind of what Paul <laughs> is talking about, but nobody wants to be in that place because that's no fun and that doesn't sound like victory and you know there's there's a lot of emphasis um on victory in the christian life and rightly so because yes there is ultimate victory but i think sometimes we want to get to the finish line before we run the race we're in the already but not yet we're between the promises come but not yet been fulfilled and so we have to be honest about that i think and and be honest and say you know god has promised that he would bring restoration to relationships but i'm still experiencing betrayal god has promised that he would bring healing to my body but i'm still experiencing sickness god promised that he would raise the dead but my loved ones are still dying and i think that kind of honesty is the thing that is reflected in paul's we endured so many trials that we despaired of life itself but we so often aren't given space to actually grieve it and actually lament the fact that God has promised these things and we can be confident in those promises. And yet we can also be honest about the places where we don't see those promises fulfilled. Isn't that, and that's amazing. It's, it's a tremendous relief. I mean, on the one hand, it's like, oh, wow, that's a bummer. But it's also a relief that 
we don't have to have it all figured out, that God doesn't have to fit into our little box, that he can still be sovereign even when things aren't making sense. Exactly right, and I think I think this is where it pushes us to 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 the adult kind of faith that Paul talks about. You know, he's like, "You've had milk for a long time, but now we're going to give you some solid food." I think some of that solid food is what's been missing in, particularly the American, but also the Western Church, which is just very much focused on the victory and the triumphalism that you talked about. And it is the idea of lament, this idea of crying out to God, and 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 to have the audacity in our prayers that the that the people in the Old Testament had. Like there's there's a prayer Job in his experiences after he has his experiences of, of losing everything. And there's essentially thirty five chapters of him uh, crying out to God. And at one point he says to God, he says in chapter thirty one, I stand here and all you do is look at me. Like just the audacity of that. Like you you know what's going on in my life. You're sovereign. You can see all things, but you're refusing to act. All you're doing is watching what's happening to me. And and to have that kind of brutal honesty is something that is is rare. It, it almost feels sacrilegious to speak to God with that that sort of umbrage. And yet this is what we see Job do. This is what we see throughout the Psalms. That right. the psalms of lament are actually filled with this this almost blaming God. Like you allow your my enemies to surround me. You've left me essentially for dead. Um, and so a, a good, honest lament actually brings these to God and says, God, you promised these things. It's yet to be fulfilled. I'm waiting for it to be filled, and I trust that you will fulfill it. But right now, since it hasn't been fulfilled, I'm holding you responsible for that. Right. Okay. And I, I read once, actually, on the subject of lament, that there's there's a difference between lament and complaint. And what you're talking about is, yeah, there is an audacity. It's like, God, this is how I feel. This is what it looks like. And and it can sound, like you said, the, the, oh, the temerity of saying sh- such things to God. But I think the difference between that and just grumbling, you know, the kind of grumbling that yeah, would yeah. get the, the Israelites swallowed up into the earth, the difference is where you land. And, you know, yep. David, for example, yeah, he he was like, hey, God, where are you? You know, just and it sounds pretty, you know, accusatory. But in the end, but and, and yet I will trust in you. I've laid it all and out. Yet, yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yep. That's exactly right. That's how the laments turn. And that's what's so important for us. Like we can be we can bring all of who we are, all of our thoughts, all of our feelings, all of our experiences, all of our frustrations, all of our hopes, bring all of who we are to all of who God is. And and in that space, part of that is naming. God, I'm waiting. It doesn't feel like you're acting, but I'm waiting. And I trust that you will at some point. That's the key part of a lament. Whereas a grief and a grumble, as you say, almost turns its back and talks under its breath, gosh, I can't believe God isn't doing this or whatever, but doesn't actually take it to God. It doesn't express any trust in the relationship. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm, I want to I wanna back up a little bit now. I want to go all the way back to the beginning of your book. Um, and even in your, your introduction, you start out with a story about walking in literal darkness. And mm, I'm just, yeah, yeah. there's there's a quote, Just it's just a little quote, but I think it's important, at least in my mind, we'll see if everybody else is tracking. Um, but here's the quote, darkness has the ability to separate those who are standing close. Darkness breeds loneliness. And I wanted you to just speak to that a little bit because this is you're starting your book talking about darkness, and I, I guess I want to know why, why, why darkness? Yeah, well, I think that well, there are a couple of things. One, when we're in the midst of a difficult situation, whether it's the loss of a job, the loss of a loved one, 
uh, a cancer diagnosis, um, you know, financial difficulties, whatever it might be. Like that feels like a kind of darkness. And it, it feels like we are being faced, you know, head on with the brokenness of the world. It's difficult to see the light of Jesus in the midst of whatever it is we're going through. And so it really does feel darkness. And, and, and sometimes darkness is oppressive. I talk a little bit in that section about how darkness is like it's almost like a wall that we got to try to push through. There's this oppressive nature to darkness. And so whenever we find ourselves in those difficult situations, I think that's what we feel. We feel overwhelmed. We feel isolated. There's a sense in like nobody else goes through this. There's a shame of, well, I can't let people know that I'm going through this, or uh, or I'm afraid that, uh, they're, I'm, that they're not going to understand. Um, and I do think that there's actually fear, fear of, I'm not going to share with people because they're just going to say things back to me, like, God won't give me more than you can handle. And and I don't want to hear that right now. And so there is this, it's, it feels like it's, it's a sense of darkness and oppressiveness. And, and then the other piece of this is, Throughout the book, I, I, I talk a lot about, I use the image from the very opening verses of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, yeah. you know, the earth formless, and it has a, this dark chaoticness to it. And that's right. what I think it feels like when we're in the midst of uh, tragedy and difficulty, that it, it feels like a chaotic darkness. And then we we long for, we're waiting for God to both bring light, but then bring order to the chaos. Um, and so, so I just I really like that image, and, I, and, I, and it's also just a sense of what we felt as we were walking through our difficulty. Right. Yeah. And you know the beauty of this, even as you're talking, and I'm realizing it's true when you're walking through difficult, chaotic situations or hard things, grieving, you know, loss of a job, whatever. But it's also true. For every new beginning, for every transition. I mean, like you just quoted mm-hmm. the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the, of the deep. So, so in a sense, even even for the wonderful things, the new thing that God yeah, is yeah. about to do, it begins with darkness. And that's yeah, amazing yeah, yeah, yeah. when you think about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you even think, of that, and this is how John starts his gospel, right? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, right? There's this idea that, that this new thing that Christ is giving birth to is, is, is coming in the midst of darkness. It doesn't come separate from it, but it springs up right in the midst of it. Right, right. And, you know, and then that next part, that darkness breeds loneliness, um, you know, and you you go on in that story to talk about you're on a hike right you're and you're yeah 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 so it starts out with this darkness but at one point you look up right so yep, tell us what yep. tell us it what happens up. yeah yeah so we were on this hike and uh, the guides that we were with um they, they woke up at, I don't know, some ungodly hour in the middle of the night. And yeah, started out hiking. We were down, <laughs> we were down in the valley and under trees. We couldn't see anything. And then we kept going up, 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 up until we got to the point where we were on top of this ridge to look up. And, and out of the darkness, you saw just an, a, the sky, the Milky Way, in, in a way that I never have because you're up at 9,000 feet on top of a mountain and there's no light like, washing it out anywhere. And you could just clearly see it. And, and you could suddenly see light in the darkness that had been 
that, that you hadn't been able to in the past. So it was just this powerful experience that reminded me that some things, like, and, and the story I tell them is you can see all the different constellations, and I love constellations, and my favorite is, is Orion, and you can see it three belts. And I couldn't see Orion that night, and uh, I was wondering, well, why can't I see him? It should be clear as day. And then I remembered, like, Orion's only out in the fall, he's not, and, and in the winter months, he's not in the summer. Uh, on the summer, he'd be on the other side of the world where it's light, and then that's where it struck me. There are some things that only shine when it's dark. There are some forms of goodness that you can only see when everything else around it is dark. Oh, that's so good, and it's so true. And and the darker the darkness, the more brilliant the light. Yeah, yeah. There's this really odd verse in Ecclesiastes that for a long time it had sort of bothered me, or it just didn't make sense. And and it's it's starting to make sense over the years. The verse is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Yeah, right? yeah. That one bothered me too. So, all right. So, what conclusion did you get? Well, it's, it's this idea of it's great to go to a wedding, right? It's great to go to a wedding reception, and, and there's wonderful things, and there's things we're celebrating there, and there's joy that's overwhelmed. But it's almost better to go to a house of mourning, because in the house of mourning, at the funeral home or in the, in the living room after a loved one has died, there's a kind of love, there's a kind of appreciation for life, there's a renewed sense of what's most important and a focus on those things. And even at times when you tell sitting around and you're telling stories about that loved one, there's a sense of joy that even exists in the midst of the grief and 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 that can never happen in the house of feasting that kind of focus on what's most important this this call to be connected to one another in a more deeper and profound way you just can't find that anywhere else um and, and that's one of the joys i've had as a pastor is sitting in people's living rooms and and, and in hospitals in those final moments and, and being being witness to uh that the beauty of those dark moments you know what i i i'm gonna agree with you because there's something about suffering as much as we all you know do everything in our power to avoid it because we like being comfortable but there's something about suffering that that highlights that magnifies that somehow intensifies maybe just by virtue of the contrast the the joy right because if there's Mm -hmm. suffering it denotes that something isn't right and and it sheds light on the fact but oh there's something even jesus right for the joy set before him he endured the cross so it's not yeah so suffering isn't all there is there's something greater there's some, and, and not only that, but suffering is the uniting human experience because it right. doesn't matter. Everyone suffers. Everyone suffers. And right. what's fascinating, as I was looking and thinking about this, you look at the Apostles' Creed, right? The creed that most Christians would say, yes, this in a succinct way summarizes our faith. When it talks about Jesus' humanity, it talks about three things. He was born, he died, he suffered, and he died. And, and so, like, it didn't talk about the fact that he enjoyed a good meal with his friends or that he laughed mm-hmm. or that he went to the wedding. It talked about the fact that Jesus suffered, that that was a key component of his humanity that connected us to all of it. And so our suffering is wrapped up in Christ's suffering, and this is where redemption begins to come from. And so there is something unique about suffering that both elevates and, and, and sharpens our attention to what is beautiful and connects us with those around us. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and we know, we know all around the world, even as we're speaking right now, there's, there is all kinds of suffering going around the world. I mean, just, you know, the, the worst things you could think of, people are starving, people are suffering, people are being persecuted for all kinds of reasons. 
So I'm, I, I kind of want to end here because, all right, there's another quote, actually, that I, I loved this quote. Okay, you said this. He said, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, which leads me to wonder if he ever comes to the suburbs. And I love that line because I think I know what you're saying. And I want to be really careful about this because, yeah, I know first world problems. I get it. My dishwasher's broken. You know, um, in light of the major suffering in the world, there's no comparison. And yet, and yet, sometimes I think there is a thought for people who, okay, maybe my bills are paid. You know, and that's great. I love it when the bills are paid. You know, my lawn looks good. Taxes are done. Maybe even, you know, my kid's on the honor roll. But, you know, there are people, if we're living in the suburbs or whatever, or what it represents, this idea that we have our life in order, that there's such a thing as people who have their life all together. And I think that's a myth. And I want you to speak a little bit to that, because I think a lot of people are in that place. And they might be discounting their own suffering. Well, that's exactly right. So uh, a couple of things here. One, in no way am I down, like, dissing those who live in the suburbs. I'm right now standing in my window looking out on my cul-de-sac in the middle of the suburbs. So, right. like, this I hear is you, buddy. where yeah. I am. Right, right. And, and, and you're exactly right that my idea when I wrote that was this 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 almost facade that happens in the suburbs. Everything looks good. The trees are all printed. The yard's trimmed up nicely. You know, the homeowners association is making sure that everybody's garbage cans are you know stored in a place where you can't see them, and your lawns are kept up clean. Your mailboxes all match, and all of this. And so there's this facade of having it all together. And in many ways, people who live in the suburbs do. But behind closed doors, as we often know, there's a lot of suffering that happens. And I think the danger is that we start comparing it because around the world there's, there's suffering that we cannot comprehend or that we can't relate to in, in, in some level, right? Like, I, I don't know what it's like to not be able to feed my children. I don't know what it's like to face intense physical persecution because of my faith. I don't know, I, I, I don't have, you know, experiences there. But that doesn't mean that my suffering is any less real. And it doesn't mean that it, that God isn't not isn't concerned with my suffering. And it doesn't mean that, that I can't in some ways understand what it means for another person to suffer because I have my own suffering. And so I think the danger is when we play that comparative game, one, we will always lose. There's always going to be someone who's going through something that we can deem more tragic or more difficult than what we've experienced. So we'll always lose that. And two, it, it isolates us from our own humanity. It isolates us from our own emotions and our own grief and our own disappointments. And thereby, because we're isolated from our own emotions, we're isolated from another's because now we can't connect to them on any level. We can't go to that spot and go, okay, I don't know what it's like to not to, to, to go years without having a job and be wondering where I'm going to get food for my family. But I do know what it's like to have loss and I do what I know it's like to be disappointed. And so I can, I, I can connect with them a little bit. And so we want to, I, I, what I want to encourage folks to do is to be honest with themselves, regardless of whether they think they've suffered a lot or a little, or what they're going through is really that difficult. Like, well, be honest about what it is you're actually going through so that you have a better connection of yourself. You can see where God is working and redeeming in your life, but then also so you can connect with others and point them to the light of Jesus. Uh-huh, because uh, and on the same, the same coin, the other side of the same coin is sometimes we don't want to reach out to our neighbor because we think, oh, they have it all together. They don't need anything. They're good. Their lawn looks better than right, mine. Right. They got a nicer car. You know, their kid's grade point average is higher. You know, so we, we get this false idea that, well, they don't need anything. They're good. And maybe what they need is is exactly what you might have to offer them. 
Exactly. And this is to go back to Paul again in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, for in the same way that you have been comforted, so comfort others. And when everybody's, when the facade looks great on the outside, you know, it, it's hard to break through. But if you can break through and really begin to share your story and the ways in which God has comforted you through the difficulties you've experienced, you think you'd be surprised at what you would find in others. For my wife and I, for years, we suffered with infertility quietly behind closed doors and behind the, the suburban facade. And as soon as we started talking about the fact that we were going through this and, and had to share the fact that we had an ectopic pregnancy and all of this, it was amazing how many people came out and said, we went through the same thing, we went through the same thing. You, you just never know what's going on behind closed doors and in people's lives. Yes, exactly. And that's why I think, you know, starting from darkness and stepping out into the light is, you know, that that's a great place. It's a great place to to land. Oh, Nate, 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 there's so much that I've, I'm so enjoying this conversation. And I want it to go on and on. And yet, I know <laughs> you, you have a life to live. So um, I just want to thank you so much. But before I let you go, we need to let people know how they can get this book and how they can find you. Yeah, yeah. So the book is uh, is anywhere books are sold. So Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Uh, uh, yeah, I think Lifeway has. It. I mean, wherever books are sold, it, it's going to be available, and you can get it. Uh, so feel free there. If you want to find me on the web, uh, www.natepile and that's p y l e dot com. My website. I'm also on Twitter and Facebook as well, so people can find me there. Okay, and yeah, and I do recommend. That people find you because they need to find this book. They need to. Um, they need the encouragement. So I thank you for writing it. I thank you for talking with me today for playing my stupid game. And I promise, <laughs> if you come back, um, you know I won't make you. I won't make you make up a catchphrase, but it might be something else. <laughs> um, Not a problem. Know, a lot of problems. All right. Well, thanks so much, Nate. God bless. Thank you. God bless you too. So I hope you wrote that catchphrase down, but just in case, here it is again. The prayers of the saints are like a fog machine's hedge of protection around Chick-fil-A. A classic in the making, and you heard it here first, folks, so I'll tell you what I'm going to do. For anyone who tweets that and tags me at Nancy Carm, C-A-R-M, oh, I'm serious, before the end of the day on May 31st, I will enter you to win your very own Isle of Misfits mug. That's what I'm going to do. We're going to spread this baby around the globe. Thanks to Nate Pyle for coming in, for hanging out with us, and for his really important book, More Than You Can Handle. And you can pick up a copy of his book at his website, natepyle.com. And please remember to visit me at isleofmisfits.com and tell all your friends, because we're not just about spreading catchphrases. We're about spreading the word to own your awkward, love your fellow misfit, and look for beauty and truth everywhere.